This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is VLX number 134, Render Unto Caesar. We are in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. VLX stands for Video Lexa Divina, your patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace and nomine pace sefiri et spiritu sancti. Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine pace sefiri et spiritu sancti. Amen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Today, the Pharisees are asking Jesus if the Jews should pay taxes to the Romans. That's probably pretty clear to most of you. But the problem is this. If Jesus says yes, then he's not a real Jewish rabbi who should be followed by the people. And then the Pharisees tattle on Jesus to all the people, the Jewish people. But if he says no, then he's an insurrectionist and the Pharisees tattle on Jesus to the Roman procurator. And then they have reason to destroy him. Now, keep an eye, as we go through all this, keep an eye on the fact that the church fathers do not say that he weaseled his way out of this just to stay alive a little bit longer like some modernists think. We're going to notice that paying taxes to a corrupt government is actually a little bit more of a complex issue than a simple yes or no, even if we were not talking about this upcoming execution of this Jewish rabbi named Jesus by his fellow jealous religious leaders. St. Augustine says of today's section, They laid a plot by means of dilemma so that whichever Christ should choose of its two horns he might be caught. If he answered it was lawful to pay taxes, he would be a traitor to the people of God. But if he said it was not lawful, he would be destroyed as an enemy to Caesar. Notice today we have a new group of bad guys on the scene that we have not seen since Jesus was a baby. They are the Herodians. Father Lapide does a sharp job on the history of them there. He writes, The Herodians were a Jewish sect who favored the Roman Caesar in the payment of tribute to him. They were named from the first Herod of Ascalon, the infanticide. That is the one who killed the babies in the beginning of the Gospels looking for Jesus who was entirely devoted to Caesar inasmuch as he had been made king of Judea by Augustus Caesar 
and the Roman Senate, and as Josephus says, was in charge of tributes to Caesar in Judea. So St. Jerome and Baronius add that these Herodians were Jewish sectaries or heretics who held that Herod of Ascalon was the Messiah or Christ promised by the prophets because they saw that in him the scepter had failed from Judah according to the prophecy of Jacob, see Genesis 49.10. Herod eagerly encouraged these flatterers and the reason why he slew the infants at Bethlehem was that he might kill Christ, that no one but himself might be accounted as Christ. For the same reason, he built a most magnificent temple for the Jews, which seemed to vie with that of Solomon. So this sounds like a group of people feigning religious attitude to the one true world religion of the time to fall in cahoots with those who believed in infanticide and had the power in the government. Hmm, does that sound like anything that we can think of in 2023? Anything at all? Father Lapide continues, The Pharisees took the opposite side, namely that Herod was not the Messiah, and that tribute ought not to be paid to the Roman Caesar. They put themselves forward as vindicators of the law of Moses and of Jewish liberty, as is evident from Josephus. Therefore, they suborned these Herodians to go together with their own disciples to Jesus as to the new prophet and teacher of Judea, and proposed to him this question about giving tribute to Caesar, which they were debating amongst themselves at that time, so that he might resolve the issue. This they did with the deceitful and crafty design that if Christ should assert that tribute ought to be given to Caesar, he would incur the hostility of the Jewish populace. If, on the other hand, he should deny it, he would fall under the anger of Caesar and the Romans, who would lay hold of him as a public enemy and condemn him to death as being guilty of sedition. So notice right here, you know the old phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees and the Herodians do not get along, but they are both so frustrated at Jesus, they are willing to overlook even their own principles to approach him in order to trip him up and ultimately to kill him. We're going to talk a little bit later about why they would actually want both, both to trip him up and to kill him. Now this term rabbi, Father Lapide says rabbi, means not only a doctor of the law, such as the rabbinis, but a potentate and a prince endowed with authority. This then was the barbed and captious question and the two-pronged dilemma. So they're reminding Jesus that he has to answer not only as a rabbi, but also as a prince. Now we have this line, neither carest thou for any man in the Douay Rhymes Bible. We're going to see in the ESV and the NIV, it's you don't care about anybody's opinion. And we're going to look at the Greek, which of those two is more accurate. But Father Lapide says this at this point. He says, it is as if the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, you do not fear either the anger of Herod nor the power of Caesar, so as to be afraid to give a true answer and deliver your opinion in behalf of your countrymen, even though you should expose yourself to the hostility of Herod and Caesar, even as John the Baptist, when he rebuked Herod's adultery, did not shrink from incurring his anger. So they're trying to goad him on, but they actually do get one thing right about Jesus here, is that he's not afraid of either of those powers. Most of the accusations of the Pharisees to Jesus are totally false, but this happens to have a little bit of truth in it, that he's truly unafraid of these people. 
St. John Chrysostom says, by means of flattery, they hoped to urge him on to boldness, that he might say something against the laws and force and the existing state of things, so that he might offend Caesar and be suspected of fomenting rebellion. So they're trying to play off of his boldness to get him to say something even beyond where they think Jesus thinks he wants to be at. And then we have this line, for thou dost not regard the person. Now in Syriac, that is face, also in Greek. And Father Lapide says, to look whether it be the face of a rich man and a prince, or a poor man and a plebeian, so that thou shouldst flatter and defend a prince and condemn a poor man, rather wilt thou, as it were, shut thine eyes, and give sentence in favor of truth and justice, and say, Caesar is my friend, but truth is a greater friend. Hence the Arabic or the Aramaic translates, Thou dost not look into the face of a man. The Greek prosopon signifies both person and face, since all persons are recognized by their faces. So basically what they're saying is Jesus treats all people equally, and they want to play off this and trip him up, even due to his virtue at this point. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about why the Pharisees recognize that Jesus doesn't care for any man or for any man's opinion. Kind of harsh words, but we're going to have to look at the, the languages to understand this. So maybe before we get to the languages, let's start with this question. Why are the Pharisees trying to entangle Jesus in his words if they already know they're going to kill him? Well, the answer is this. They have to be justified before the people. This is how wicked people have always worked, even today. I really don't think there's many wicked people listening to this podcast. So you're really not even going to understand how the diabolical narcissist mind works unless you've met some really, really bad people. So I want to look at that, unfortunately. Now, to give you an, an example, an analogy, let me be really clear here. I'm not about to compare Tucker Carlson to Jesus, but I am going to compare the Democrats to the Pharisees so you can kind of get an idea of how their minds work in this type of stuff. You see, if they really wanted to take out Tucker, and I think you know what I mean by take out, they would have to make him look like a moral failure first so that the right, and notice by right, I didn't say Republicans, since neither I nor Tucker trust the Republicans any more than we do the Democrats, but the latter are extremely, ex extremely evil. And if the latter wanted to take out Tucker, they would have to show him as either an intellectual failure or a moral failure. But everyone knows he's too smart for that through what he's produced over the decades. So the left would have to first prove Tucker is a moral failure uh, so that the right didn't make him into be a martyr. And the left also has to do this to feel good about their own level of evil. Again, I'm not comparing Tucker to Jesus, but I do want you to see similarities in how their enemies work uh, since they really do have very similar minds that we're going to see in today's section of the gospel on the Pharisees. Let's look at those first few verses again. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are the true, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Want to focus specifically on those words that the, that the Pharisee said about Jesus, and to say that he does not care about anyone's opinion. That's what it says in the ESV there in Matthew twenty-two sixteen. You do not care about anyone's opinion. Now, I actually think that's a pretty good translation. The Greek here reads, Umele su pere odenos. 
Umele su peri udenus. Let's parse that out. U is not. Mele is care. So put those two words together. You don't care. Peri is about. And udenos is no one or anyone. So the Pharisees are literally, literally saying to Jesus, you don't care about anyone. But they have to know that is not an accusation anyone would believe in the first century after all of his miracles, all of his care for the poor, raising of the dead, healing of lepers, everything that he does. They know they wouldn't believe it. So I don't think here the Pharisees are lying. I actually think there's something idiomatic happening here in the Aramaic or the Greek. Idiomatic means the translation cannot be transliterated because there's something happening in the original language that you're trying to translate from that requires a dynamic translation, not a word-for-word translation to get what's actually happening. Now, of course, there is the NIV translation. I don't promote that much because it's a Protestant Bible, which is actually missing books. But one of the advantages of the NIV is their translators have often studied the idiomatic aspects of the ancient languages. So I do want to share what they came up with on verse 16. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. As we look at the Greek and even what Father Lapide says, I think that's a very good modern translation. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Again, the ESV reads, and you do not care about anyone's opinion if you're not swayed by, by appearances. Now, many of you are using the Douay Rhymes Bible, and it reads, Master, we know that thou art a true speaker and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou dost not regard the person of men. Think about that term for a minute, for thou dost not regard the person of men. This is what we call in traditional theology, respect of persons or human respect. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas considers respect of persons to be a sin that is based on Deuteronomy 117, which reads, Neither shall you respect any man's person. First, let's talk about what this does not mean. What the Bible and Thomas Aquinas do not mean is that it's a sin to respect all persons equally. Of course, everyone deserves our respect as being made in the image and likeness of God. And we're going to see image and likeness obviously come back to this section of Matthew 22, very importantly, quite a bit later. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that God has a prohibition against honoring one person over another person. If you read the second part of the second part of the Summa, question 63 by St. Thomas Aquinas on human respect, you will see that God's prohibition on honoring one person more than another is based on the why more than the what or the who. So why could you honor one person more than another? Once again, let's start with the why not. The main reason you cannot honor one person more than another, again, in Thomas Aquinas, this is called respect of of persons. The main reason you should never honor one person more than another is because of his money or fame. The respondeo, that's just the first person Latin for I respond, the respondeo section of Article 1 in 63 I will link this in the show notes. It reads, I answer that respect of persons is opposed to distributive justice. For the equality of distributive justice consists in allotting various things to various persons in proportion to their personal dignity. A just judge regards causes, not persons. 
For instance, if you promote a man to a professorship on account of his having sufficient knowledge, knowledge, you consider the due cause not the person. But if a man promotes someone to a professorship because he is rich, it is respect of persons. Okay, so it's pretty simple there that if you give someone a job at a university because he's smart, that's okay. But if you give it to him because he's rich or famous and there's a, another man ahead of him who's smarter, then that is respect to persons, which is a sin. So it's actually a sin in the Bible and the church fathers and St. Thomas Aquinas for you or me to give special attention to another just because he's rich or famous. However, as I said earlier, we can still honor one person more than another, and that is based on virtue. That same section, second part of the second part, question 63, but this time in Article 3, has the respondio of St. Thomas Aquinas that reads like this. I answer that. To honor a person is to recognize him as having virtue. Wherefore, virtue alone is the due cause of a person being honored. Now, it is to be observed that a person may be honored not only for his own virtue, but also for another's. Thus, princes and prelates, even if they were wicked, are honored as standing in God's place and as representing the community over which they are placed. The rich ought to be honored by reason of their occupying a higher position in the community, but if they be honored merely for their wealth, it will be a sin of respect of persons, end quote. So notice there, normally we do have to honor officials in the government or ecclesiastical hierarchy, even if they're bad. And even St. Thomas right there recognized that obviously money influences certain positions because we live in a fallen world, but those are exceptions. And then there's also some exceptions like how we honor those in old age. St. Thomas Aquinas says the aged should be honored because old age is a sign of virtue, though this sign fail at times. What he means by those last four or five words is that this rule fails at times. Sometimes the older people have no virtue. But those are all small exceptions. Really the key here is this. St. Thomas Aquinas writes in question 63, to honor a person is to recognize him as having virtue, wherefore virtue alone is the due cause of a person being honored, end quote. And you know, honestly, I think this is what the Pharisees see in Jesus. As I said earlier, most of their insults against him are false accusations, but this happens to be a true one, namely that Jesus doesn't play popularity games with the rich, and he obviously doesn't care what the powerful think about him. Now imagine that type of interior freedom you or I could have if we came just a little bit closer to what Jesus has there. That doesn't mean we would act like slobs or be disrespectful of people or have no manners or be mean. It rather means that we would have really great manners and respect for everyone while staying free of everyone's ego who happens to have a big ego. I looked for the quote and I couldn't exactly find it, but I have read G.K. Chesterton's book on St. Francis of Assisi, I think three or four times. I love it so much. And again, I couldn't find the exact quote, but basically uh, G.K. Chesterton says that when St. Francis of Assisi went into a room, he didn't just treat royalty as royalty, he treated even the poor as royalty. Everybody he treated as royalty. You might see, just picture St. Francis like that. Um, that is very different from our modern and twisted idea of St. Francis, that he was kind of this, I don't know, hippie slob with no manners. Uh, no, that's not true. I agree with G.K. Chesterton that Francis of Assisi, Francis of Assisi showed no man more respect than he showed another man. Why? Because he had total respect for both men in front of him, 
without kowtowing to the egos of the rich and the famous one. And honestly, that is true freedom in Jesus Christ. It's exactly one of those things the Pharisees get right about Jesus. They saw Jesus love them, but they also saw Jesus didn't care if they liked him as he was trying to save their souls. So let's put everything together I've said about Tucker Carlson and St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis of Assisi. They all reflect something of Jesus, that we are called to be kind to everyone, but not to give advance to anyone based on their money or ego or fame. We are to honor others only, or at least especially, because of their virtue. Now, someone might point out in the gospel, what about someone like St. Mary Magdalene? Did she have any virtue that Jesus honored in making her such a close friend? Well, at her conversion, yes, she did have the tremendous virtue of humility and repentance. And Christ honors that not only by forgiving all her sins, but even by freeing her of all those demons. But the Pharisees, like the demoncrats, not only can't they be like Jesus, I really don't even think they think it's possible to be like he is. Why? Because their minds are so focused on themselves. And really, again, most of you are such good people, you can't even fathom this level of evil. I've seen it as a paramedic and as a priest. I hate saying that these are the two places where I've seen this much evil. But that's the level of evil uh, that has entered Washington, D.C. and the Vatican at this point. And I'm not saying that to be political, but so that you can understand why people can see the truth on, say, we'll keep a G-rated harmful surgeries for children or true classic Catholic doctrine and still want to promote such destruction of the truth. I think we're way past people saying, you know, those in Washington, D.C. or the Vatican, you know who I mean, are just being misinterpreted or confused. That might have worked a decade ago. It's not working anymore. And you can't understand that level of evil until you understand that the diabolical narcissist doesn't care about the truth at all, only his ego. Uh, But Jesus and St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis of Assisi, they only care about the truth. And Tucker's on his way there too, so pray for his conversion to Catholicism. Okay, back to the text, verses 17 and 18. Tell us then what you think, say the Pharisees, and the Herodians, by the way. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And Father Lapide says this is as if Jesus were saying to them, You pretend to be friends and to desire to be religious and maintain a good conscience, that you may know what is right and just for you to do in this case according to the law of God, when all the while you are my enemies and God's also, and are thirsting for my blood, and are trying by fraud and deceit to extort it from me. Then Jesus continues in Matthew 22, Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Father Lapide says, That is of Tiberius Caesar, who then reigned. Christ already knew this, but he put the question that he might draw from their own mouth a reply which he could turn against them and convict them. The Kanyaman Caesar was first given to Julius Caesar, from whom it passed to the succeeding emperors. Now, remember earlier I said the whole topic of paying taxes to an unjust government is a little bit more complex than most traditional Catholics out there would have thought, including myself. 
But behind this question of the Jews paying taxes to the Romans is the question of, was this a just conquering of the Romans to the Jews? Now, most of you know that all of history is peppered with wars and conquerings and everything else like that. And to the victor goes the spoils. That's just how history works in a post-lapsarian world. Post-lapsarian just means after the fall. But Father Lapide does tackle this topic of if the Romans were justified rulers over the Jews. You might think he might give an immediate no to that question, but he doesn't. And I think it's worth reading a little bit, not all of it, but a little bit of what Father Lapide says on this topic of the just rule or the unjust rule of the Romans over the Jews. He says, Note that Christ is here unwilling to enter into the question whether the Jews were justly made subjects and tributaries of the Romans or unjustly and tyrannically. For this was a doubtful question. But prima facie, that means at first blanche, the negative, that they were not justly subject, would seem more correct. And then a little bit later, Father Lapidus says, And yet, if we examine what happened more carefully, we shall perceive that the contrary proposition is more probable, namely that Pompey and the Romans seized upon Judea by the right of a just war. For when Pompey had justly decided in favor of Hyrcanus as being the elder, assigned to him the rule of Judea and that high priesthood, his younger Aristobulus attacked Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, and filled it with his followers and soldiers who fought against both Pompey and Hyrcanus. Then Pompey took the city by storm and made it subject with the consent of Hyrcanus to the Roman yoke. Hyrcanus, being unable to keep it by himself, delivered it to Pompey with the consent of the elders and nobles of the Jews who preferred to be subject to the Romans rather than to Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. That's pretty amazing. What he's saying right there is the corrupt Jewish government handed it over to the Romans and in some sense they all deserved it because of this. Hence, Father Lapide says, St. Jerome says, and there was a great dissension among the people between those who said that they should pay tribute for the sake of security and tranquility, since the Romans provided them with all military defense, and the Pharisees who boasted of their justice claim that the people of God to whom they paid tithes and offered the first fruits and the other things that are written in law should not be subject to human laws. And then Father Lapide says, lastly, Prescription was on the side of the Romans, for in good faith they had been in peaceful possession of Judea for about a hundred years, with at least the tacit assent of the Jewish people. Hence, by prescription, they seemed to occupy the territory of Judea justly. Now, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other, but I do find it pretty amazing that Father Lapide, who might be canonized one day and might be one of the top five great, greatest scripture scholars of the whole Catholic Church, does believe the Romans occupied that land justly. He continues, Therefore, if the Pharisees wished to deprive the Romans of this possession, the burden of proof was upon them to show that they had acquired it unjustly and possessed it in bad faith. Since they were not able to do this, the Romans rightly retained possession. Now listen to this, everybody. So Father Labide says, Christ, therefore, in this place, does not choose to enter into the question whether the Roman domination over Judea and their imposition of tribute was just or unjust. So in other words, even though Father Lapide kind of weighs in, he points out that Christ does not. But I think it's important for us to see why Father Lapide does err on the side of saying this Roman rule over the Jews was justified. And so Jesus not giving a direct answer is by no means him just squirreling away 
without wanting to give it because it's a complex topic and that's really not what he's going for as we're about to see in this whole section on whose image is on the coin. Then in verse 21, Jesus says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Notice in the ESV there, that is capital G-O-D apostrophe S. That is the things that belong to God, the things that belong to Yahweh. And the Aramaic there says, as this coin is in Jesus's hand, whose figure and inscription is this? Of course, that should remind you of the very first chapter of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. Now, of course, you've probably heard a sermon from a decently good priest, even if he's not a traditional, he's probably a good conservative non-traditional priest, or even a good traditional priest, has probably already given you a sermon on how, something about saying how, you owe taxes to the government with the image of the president on the coin, but because you yourself bear the image of God in your own soul, you owe worship of your whole being to God himself. And actually, that is a totally correct line and interpretation, even though we've heard it in numerous sermons, that, yeah, give the coin to the government. doesn't matter. It has the image of a president on it, but... You are made in God's image and likeness, and you owe your whole heart, body, soul, and mind to God being made in his image and likeness. And we actually have proof of this from Father Lapide reflecting or quoting the church fathers. St. Hilary says, We are bound to render unto God, we are bound to render unto God the things of God, our body, soul, and will. For the coin of Caesar is in gold, in which his image is engraven, but God's coin is man, in whom is the image of God. Give your money then to Caesar, but keep for God the consciousness of your innocence. End quote. And St. Augustine says, to God must be given Christian love, to kings human fear. And St. Bernard, render unto Caesar the penny which has Caesar's image, render unto God the soul which he created after his own image and likeness, and you shall be righteous. And finally, the last verse today, when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That is, when the Pharisees heard such brilliant wisdom, they marveled and went away. The word marveled in Greek there is thaumadzo. We've covered that before. And again, the definition is to wonder, to marvel at, to admire, to be amazed, to be astonished. So consider the horror we're looking at at the end of today's section. The Pharisees walk away in total awe and amazement at Jesus' answer and his heavenly wisdom on paying taxes, but they still slink away with more desire to kill him. You know you have real evil in your heart when you can look the truth in the face and still want to destroy it. Thanks to all my benefactors, both spiritual and material. I remember you at my Masses. Please say an hour, Father, for me that I may practice what I preach at benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi, et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen.